0: it is with grateful hearts that we bring these gifts to you. We we offer them to you in confidence that you will receive them and that you will receive us because of Christ and to the end that Christ is honored and glorified, exalted, heard and heard from here in this place, And by your grace, even to the ends of the earth, we offer them to you in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. And please turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And believe it or not, we're finished. But I hope these things stay with us because they, as I've said several times, are absolutely essential for us in the living of the Christian life. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, now we come to the outworking of all of this that you have been working into us. But even in this, we need your help, your grace to sustain us. And so as we consider this little bit of your word this morning, grant us your spirit. Uh, Walk among us by your spirit. Open our hearts. Open the eyes of our understanding. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us trust and confidence that you, as we look to you and as we walk this path that you have set before us, will give us what we need, moment by moment, to walk it faithfully. And Lord Jesus, when we stumble and fall, may we know in our heart of hearts that we have not lost your favor, nor the favor of the Father, but you are there to right us, to restore us, and walk with us as we continue. Help us, Jesus, to believe these things. We ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We we are coming in these verses to this last phrase. We've been looking at this passage in detail. And when we come to this last little phrase, which is in the second half of verse 2, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We come, I think, frankly, to what is the most daunting, uh, breathless, um, and potentially despairing phrase in this passage. The things that have preceded looking at this phrase are the foundations upon which we can have any courage, any confidence, any hope at all as we look at this phrase. And as we look at this phrase, as we think about these things, as we, as we consider this morning what it is this little phrase means, it just seems to me that it is inevitable that we'll be driven back to look back over our heads and to cry out to God, that He will do the kinds of things that we have said He must do as we've looked at these earlier phrases. He must transform me. He must do that by the renewing of my mind and my heart and my will. As I present myself to Him, He must be my Lord and my life-giving Master because if He is not those things, there is simply no chance that what Paul talks about in this last phrase that we're considering this morning is even remotely possible. Paul has said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may discern or prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And as we read these verses, let me suggest this imagery to you. It's imagery that I stole from Sinclair Ferguson. It's like we've been living at base camp as we've made an ascent up Mount Everest. And base camp, if you're going to climb Mount Everest, is at 15,000 feet. But there are 12,000 feet more of ascent 12 to 14,000 feet more of ascent that you have to navigate and and negotiate in order to get to the summit and standing at base camp and looking at that summit that's where we are as we consider this last little phrase let me insert this little observation from G.K. Chesterton who lived at the end of the 19th Century and into the early part of the 20th century. Chesterton said, It is not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. Rather, it is that Christianity has been found hard and not tried. What are we talking about here? Let me give you three pegs, three thoughts. It's a kind of an unfolding sort of a thing, a progressive sort of thing. What we're talking about here is that in the Christian life, there is an obedience. There is an obedience. But more than just an obedience, it is a comprehensive obedience. It is an obedience that extends to the entirety of my life. But more than that even, more than a simple obedience or a comprehensive obedience, it is an otherworldly obedience. Obedience. It is an otherworldly obedience. So first, there is an obedience in the Christian life. It may seem like an odd thing to say, um, but there really is an obedience to the Christian life. and I say only, that I say that it's odd only because you probably expect that. You probably would acknowledge that. There is a life of obedience to which we're called. We're called to follow Christ. We're called to obey him. That's the, the language, really, of Romans chapter 12. The language that Paul uses in the earlier part of this verse is the language of transformation. We're called to be transformed. Again, I know we've landed on this and camped on this word a bit, but, but it's important, I think, for us to camp on it for just a little bit longer. We're commanded to something here. We are commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul to be transformed. Now, we talked last week about the fact, or the week before, that this, this word is in the passive voice. And I said last week, you've got to understand in the Christian life, no matter where you are in the Christian life, where, whether you are at its inception or near its end, you are being summoned to transformation. And remember, remember what that word means. Remember, and this is going back several weeks Remember that that word transformed appears only four times in the New Testament. It appears twice in the Gospels. It appears at Matthew 17 verse 2 and Mark chapter 9 verse 2. And it is a, tr- a description of Jesus' transfiguration. And He was transfigured before them. And His face shone like the sun and His clothes became as white as light. That's Matthew 17.2 and Mark 9.3. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as none on earth could bleach them. Before the inquirer's class, one of the participants in the inquirer's class was walking across the parking lot and I opened the door and, and, and as I opened the door, he said, there you are in all of your radiant beauty. I said, dude, you need glasses. <laughs> radiant beauty? I mean, just because I got this really pretty purple tie on? Jesus was transformed. And it's interesting, Luke doesn't use the word transformed in his gospel. He uses the word altered. The text says his face was altered. But he does say of Moses and Elijah that they, quote, appeared in glory. Whose glory? What glory? The glory into which Jesus had been transfigured, or better, the glory which was made manifest as the veil of His humanity fell and His true nature exploded forth in a blaze of glory. Paul uses the word, and this is the third place that the word appears in the New Testament, Paul uses the word, in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 18. And we, with unveiled face, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And the thing that I want for us to see, the connection that I want for us to make, is that this transformation is a transformation in the direction of glory. Of glory. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones would say the Christian system is not just the best of systems. It's not just a better system it is sui generis it is a genre all unto itself it is like anything else this is not about you it's not about me becoming nicer a better husband a better citizen a better Whatever, this is about some kind of radical transformation that leads to an exposition of, a display of glory. It's big, my friends. What was lost because of sin and the fall? What was lost? because of sin and the fall. So much was lost. I've said this repeatedly over this last week. I said it last Sunday night. I think I said it the Sunday night before that. I said it Friday morning at the refuge. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your system is, what your theology is, how you understand God, whether you believe in God or not. Here is one thing that I know about you. You know in your heart of hearts wherever you are on the spectrum of possible beliefs, you know in your heart of hearts that things are not the way they're supposed to be. This life is not the way you want it to be. And you ask the question, how did it get this way? You ask the question, what went wrong? The Christian conception of things is that something tragic, desperately tragic happened. And that thing that happened is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3, where the evil one, the one who does inhabit, not in the way God does, but the evil one who does inhabit this world, this cosmos in which we live, enticed the man and the woman away from, trust in, confidence in, the goodness of God and the grace and mercy of God and planted seeds of doubt in their minds so that they began to suspect whether or not God was really good and in that suspicion was born the the fruit of rebellion, and from that rebellion came a rejection of God and this ridiculous and foolish posture of being autonomos, autonomous. Of being the ones who would define what is true and live in accordance with what we define to be true. And the question that has to be asked is, how has that worked for the whole of humankind from that moment to this? Not so well. And you ask, what was lost by that rebellion? What was forfeited? More things than we can count. Innocence was lost. Righteousness was lost. Joyful submission to an ever gracious and lavish God was lost. Freedom was lost. Peace was lost. But the preeminent thing that was lost was glory. Glory. To be clothed, robed in brilliant, blinding, beautiful glory. And to be naked and ashamed as a result. Folks, the work of Christ is not simply for your forgiveness. It is for your renovation, your restoration. It is for your glorification. And so how does it come? How does this transformation from one degree of glory to another. How does it happen? How does it come? Paul tells us in that same passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that it comes by beholding the Lord. It comes by beholding the Lord and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Look, I'll be happy to make copies of these sermons for you if you'd like. But I would love for you to read two or three of Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons on this very thing. Or he keeps stressing this over and over and over again, that when we find ourselves in trouble, when we find ourselves wrestling with some grievous sin, some perplexing temptation, when we find ourselves falling so far short of what it is we in our own hearts want to be and know that we should be, our tendency is, our first instinct and impulse is, And I guess I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but with with real seriousness, our first impulse is to go by Stephen Covey's book, The seven habits of highly effective people or some other self-help book that gives me techniques and structures and provides parameters so that I can be the thing that I'm not. And what Paul is saying is, and what Martin Lloyd-Jones has captured is, that's a wrong way to think about transformation. There's something else that has to happen. Because transformation only comes... Moment by moment, from one degree of glory to another, as I with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. Folks, that's just another way of saying, it's another way of Paul saying, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And remember that mind for the Hebrew person is not mere thinking, it's not cogitation, it's not ratiocination. Just being rational and reasoning things through. It's not just brain activity. It takes in the whole of the person, heart and soul and mind. How am I changed? I am changed by beholding the glory of the Lord. And where does that happen, my friends? It happens primarily in the first instance when I am in the presence of the Word of Christ. Wherever I can find it. Wherever I can find it. I wonder if you believe what you professed this morning. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially... The preaching of the Word. An effectual means of enlightening, convincing, humbling sinners. Of driving them out of themselves and drawing them to Christ. Of conforming them to His image and subduing them to His will. Of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions. Of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. What is the primary and essential non-negotiable element in the transformation of one sinner from one degree of glory to another? It is the Word of Christ who, by His Spirit, applies that Word to my deepest needs and effects From one degree of glory to another, from moment to moment, day after day, my transformation. That's why I said to you last week, in referring to a whole lot of things that are helpful, that are good, that are important in the life of the church, in the life of a Christian. Things like fellowship gatherings, even the sacraments. Things like accountability groups or support groups. Things like prayer meetings. These things are not inconsequential. They're not important. But folks, to the extent that those things do not have Christ and the Word of Christ explicitly, clearly, at their center, they lose their power. As I said last week, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, detached from the Word of God, become empty, meaningless, and do not give help. Prayer groups, support groups, accountability groups become, can become, not necessarily, but they certainly can become and way too often do become simply gatherings of like-minded people who do one of two things, either reinforce one another in their like-mindedness or they become little environments in which we both lie, lie, pretend, That's what can happen with these means of grace, means which Christ has given to the church, but at the center of which in each case must be the word of Christ so that Christ through His Spirit in and by that word may effect real transformation in our lives. It's the totality of my person under the word of Christ that moment by moment, day after day, has this kind of effect, beautifying me, transforming me, moving me more and more and more in the direction of that for which I was made, glory. Glory. Paul alludes to it, 2 Corinthians 4. Read the first four chapters of 2 Corinthians this week. Paul is clearly struggling. He's struggling with conflict. He's struggling with opposition. He's struggling with the interior world and, and a propensity to be discouraged and cast down. And he comes to verse 16 of chapter, two, of chapter 4. We do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us, even this is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far surpassing things that can be seen. Folks, it's glory being re-robed, re-clothed in the glory of Christ. That's where you're headed. That's what this transformation leads to. And as it leads in that direction, it produces an obedience. There's an obedience that flows out of that. That's what this passage is about. It, It leads to something that can be seen, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that leads to the second thing. This obedience is a comprehensive obedience. It touches everything. It extends to everything. There is nothing that is not in view in this transformation that Christ is effecting by His transforming power through His Word. Read Romans 12-14, through beginning at verse 3, and then on into 15, and through verse 20. And you get pictures, you get snapshots of the fact that disobedience is comprehensive. It touches relationships at this horizontal level. Relationships with other believers. Relationships with believers who are weak in the faith, whose consciences are particularly sensitive about things. That's in chapter 14. It touches our relationships here in the church. That's the rest of chapter 12 and how we relate to one another and live with one another. Verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to to, to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Not in seeking honor, but in showing honor. When we started this, I said, who does these things? Who does these things? Who seeks the honor of another before seeking his or her own honor? This is craziness. But that is where this goes. It touches your relationship to the state. Romans chapter 13. Be in submission to the governing authorities. For they are appointed by God and they have a purpose in your life. Written at the time of Nero. Not a pleasant time to be alive and not a pleasant time to be invited. In fact, commanded To be in submission. It touches everything. And let me suggest this to you. Let me suggest to you that Romans 12 verse 3 through Romans 15 verse 21 is actually an exposition. An unpacking of Romans chapter 1 verse 7. Now this is stunning. Again, I'm helped by this. In this. By the commentators. When Paul addresses this letter to the Romans, to whom does he address it? The answer to the question is obvious. It's a letter to the Romans. He addresses it to the Romans. People living in Rome. But look at what he says in verse 7 of chapter 1. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints called to be saints. In a nutshell, let me tell you what this means. Paul is saying, look, I understand that you live in Vero Beach, Florida. I understand that Vero Beach, Florida is in the state of Florida and that the state of Florida is in the United States of America. I understand that that is where you live. But you are called to be something else. You are called to be saints. Now both of these words, calling and saintliness, have suffered, I think, some serious misconstruals and misunderstanding. Calling as pertaining people called to the ministry or called to the mission field is very much a theme in the scriptures. But here's what I'd have you observe. I'd have you observe that as you read the New Testament, in the overwhelming majority of cases, the word is not used with respect to ministers of the gospel or missionaries. The word is mostly used with respect to all of us as Christians. We are all called. In fact, the word church, ecclesia, from which we get our word ecclesiastic and ecclesiology comes from the Greek word that means called out ones. Called out ones. Calling is you, calling is what God does when He calls someone. From bondage in death to freedom in life. Calling is what happens when God summons someone from the bondage of sin into the liberty of forgiveness. And God is calling us not only from something, but He is calling us to something. And what is that to which He is calling us? He is calling us to be saints. Not people who are put under glass and bronzed over for the rest of us to worship. God is calling every one of us to be set apart. And He is calling us to holiness. That is what a saint is. One who is called, set apart, and the trajectory of that person's life, touching every area of his or her life, is in the direction of holiness. Conformity to the image of the Holy One of Israel, Jesus. And I'll say again, I think Romans 12, verses 3 and following, is simply an exposition of, Of Romans 1 verse 7. This is what it looks like. To be called from this. To this. And it touches every single one of us. So there is an obedience that is rooted in this work of transformation which God is effecting as more and more our thinking, our hearts, more and more are changed, reordered, realigned with the word of Christ, realigned with Christ himself. That produces an obedience. It's a comprehensive obedience. And then here's this thing. It is an otherworldly Obedience. It's otherworldly. It's not just better, folks. It's not just different. It's not just the best. It's otherworldly. This little phrase in this second verse where Paul, having said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may, by testing, discern what is the will of God, this phrase, by testing discern, actually renders one word. And that's why if you look at different translations, whether the ESV or the King James or the New American Standard or the New International Version, you look at four or five, you'll see little nuances captured by those translations that are all pregnantly in this little word. The ESV renders it so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. But here's what the word means literally. It means by testing you can determine the value of something. You can come to know the value of something. You can learn from experience that the thing is genuine. It's a word that was used an awful lot with respect to currencies during the period of the Roman Empire. You test the currency to make sure that it has value. I remember seeing an old cowboy movie. Maybe John Wayne or Robert Mitchum. or I don't even remember who it was. But somebody gave somebody a coin, a gold coin, and the guy took the coin and he bit on it. Why did he do that? To discern whether or not it was real gold. To discern whether or not it had real value by biting down on it. Proving, demonstrating, discerning, confirming that it has real value. That's the word that's used here. All of that is captured by that word. It has to do with personal experience. It has to do with putting things to the test. It has to do with trying something out to make sure, to ascertain, to determine that it really does have value. Do you see what's being said here? God is saying, in effect, put me to the test. Put me to the test. Look, I get, I understand, I understand that your minds, your hearts, your wills are in the process of being changed. I get, I understand, this is God speaking. I understand that sometimes, in fact, maybe most of the time, you're pretty deeply and desperately confused (laughs) that you don't really know. The voices of the world, the subtle inducements and seductions to be conformed to the world, I understand that those voices are all around you. And I understand how easy it is for you to hear those voices and be tempted to believe those voices and obey those voices. And I know this because I was once among you. I was incarnate. I walked this path. I was tempted in every way as you are tempted, yet I did not sin. But I understand. And so here's what I'm saying to you. Put it to the test. There's another voice. There's another voice that is summoning you, calling you, setting a path before you, delineating for you how to walk that path. Put me to the test in this and see. If it isn't the case that as you test this way, you don't find in your own experience that it is all three of these things. It is a thing of surpassing value, a thing which is good, a thing which is well-pleasing, and a thing which is whole and life-giving. Put me to the test in this. That's the invitation. Put me to the test and see if you don't learn from experience, if your own experience doesn't demonstrate as you put me to the test that the will of God is, in fact, good and well-pleasing and perfect. That is whole and life-giving. And put me to the test in a couple of ways There are two ways to understand the will of God, and I believe we're supposed to understand both of them as we read this word in the text. They can mean either. I believe we are not supposed to have to choose. I believe we are supposed to embrace both realities. This word, will, can mean what God requires and what he forbids what we call God's prescriptive will, what he prescribes, right? Things like the Ten Commandments that we read this morning. <laughs> Things like a stunning passage, a staggering passage, like Ephesians 4.32, where Paul says to the Ephesians, be gentle and tender-hearted toward one another forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you that is a prescription my friends that is something that I am called to it is like Romans 12 verse 9 let love Be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You want an Everest to climb? You want to sit at base camp and look at the pinnacle of the mountain that is so far outside my grasp that requires so much more of me than I am able to give, let that one be your Everest. Ephesians 4.32 Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. How deeply have you been wronged? And by whom? How deeply have you been wronged and by whom? Call me. We'll go have lunch. And I'll tell you how deeply I have been wronged in my past and by whom. And I will tell you that to this day, there is a small handful of people whom I have forgiven, capital F, and who in a moment-to-moment, day-to-day manner struggle to forgive. You want an Everest? You see why I say if we think about the will of God this thing that is good and acceptable and perfect, do you see why what that does is turn me back in the direction of everything that has preceded me in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, that I present myself to God, here I am God, I cannot, I stand before you plainly, clearly, happily acknowledging that I cannot do this. I stand before you. I present myself, the totality of who I am. I stand before you as a living sacrifice, a sacrifice that by your grace has been set apart, holy, and that by the cross and righteousness of Christ, I have been made acceptable in your sight. I am a holy, living Righteous, accepted sacrifice because of Christ, and I stand before you, and I say, in this moment at, with respect to this particular thing i 'm powerless. God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Help me, and then I move to chapter two and I, or verse two, and I say, Do your transforming work i 'm submitting to you i 'm bowing before you. Transform me. Change me. Metamorphosize me. And from there I run to Christ's Word because Christ's Word remakes and reshapes and reforms me. It's not a self-help book. It is Christ by the power of His Word. I've got to consume it. I've got to devour it. I've got to get my mind and my heart in line with it so that He, He through His Word effects This transformation to which I'm commanded. Let me ask you. Do you read your Bible every day? Neither do I. And when I don't, do you know that I'm committing the most ridiculous act of foolishness and neglect a person could possibly commit? Do you say it's a great day to be on the boat? I think I'll go out on the boat instead of being among the people of God. You know, I've, I've toyed with this. I won't do it, but I've toyed with it. I've toyed with the idea of leaving a post-it note on the door and saying, you know, it was such a lovely day today, I decided not to come to worship, but I decided to go walk on the beach because I really can commune with Jesus Christ in nature. So have a nice service. See, I, I know that I have to be here. But do I know why I know that I have to be here. Do I know that to be here in the midst of Christ's people, before His Word, before the face of Christ Himself, do I know that without this I die? And what does my experience show me? See, I put it to the test. I I, I will tell you, that, that 45 years as a Christian, almost 45 years, over 40. I have never gotten up from reading the word of God and said to myself, that was a waste of my time. Never. Do I always get a quiver in the liver? Nah. Do I always see Jesus? Nah. But if I come to the place where I acknowledge there is always a benefit, absolutely. Absolutely. And the same is true of worship. And the same is true of any means of grace where Christ, the Word, and the Word of Christ take center stage and are prominent. And when that happens, then I find that the will of God is Is in fact demonstrated and proven to be good and acceptable and perfect. And folks, let me tell you, that comes with something as hard, as painful, as self giving and selfless as forgiveness. When by God's grace, I am actually enabled to extend forgiveness to one who has hurt me deeply. I find that this is, in fact, the way life is supposed to be. And it is good. And it is well-pleasing. And it is whole and life-giving. That's understanding the will of God in its prescriptive sense, what God calls us to. But there is this second sense or definition of this word. It can refer as well to God's will of decree to what God has determined that he will do. His, what we call, decorative will. Not decorative, but decorative. D-E-C-R-E-T-I-V-E. What God has decreed and what God has decreed takes in the entirety of his plans and his purpose for my life and for all of history, for the entirety of my life and for the entirety of human history. This is good and well-pleasing and whole, perfect, complete And my experience begins to bear it out. Can I give you just two examples from the scriptures? And then one, a third example from the experience of a distant friend. Let me invite you to read, not now but later, Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13, where the apostle writes, I have learned the secret of being content in whatever circumstance I find myself Do you know where the apostle was when he wrote those words? He was in prison. This is not a prison for executives. This is not a white collar prison. This is a dungeon, a beneath ground, stinky, rat filled with a little bit of straw thrown on a dirt floor kind of a place. This is being in the hole, if you've seen the Shawshank Redemption. This is Andy Dufresne for two months alone in a cell without sunlight and with no contact with other human beings. And the Apostle Paul says in those verses, I've learned the secret of being content In whatever circumstance I find myself, I am enabled by God's grace. I've learned this, you see. It's not a pill that he took. It's not a sudden realization. It is a thing that he learned across the days and months and years of his life. I have learned that God is worthy of my trust no matter my circumstance. And in fact, the apostle would say, In Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then, of course, there's the story of Joseph. Sold by his brothers into slavery. Dragged off to Egypt. For who knows how long. Imprisoned twice betrayed, deceived, lied about. Who then by the grace of God is elevated to the place that is second only to Pharaoh. And who when his brothers finally appear before him, and you know the story, they fear for their lives. Here is the most powerful person in all of Egypt, and they are concerned that they will be executed, and they have every right to be executed. And Joseph says to them, I know you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. God decreed the whole thing. The whole thing. You sending me into captivity, me suffering all of these injustices. You meant it for evil. But God meant the whole thing for good so that there might be salvation for a people as it is this day. When Paul says that we get to the place where we demonstrate by our experience, testing the value of something, he's talking about this. That it is through life, it is in the experiences of our life that God in this transformative process brings us to the place where we are able to embrace a dungeon and even death as good and well-pleasing and perfect. And the supreme example of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ, which is the most evil thing ever perpetrated against another human being in which a truly innocent person suffers and then is subjected to the outpouring of the unmitigated wrath of God. No more evil thing has ever happened and it was appointed by the Father so that through the Son an immeasurable good would flow to an innumerable people. And that will of God was good and acceptable and perfect. Folks, I don't don't know how else to put it but to say that the Christian life begins from an otherworldly source and it manifests itself in an otherworldly life. And so, moment by moment, day by day, week in, week out, I appeal to you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to the foolishness, emptiness, bankruptcy of this dying world, but be transformed by the constant exposure of your minds to the word of Christ and to the Christ of the word so that by testing you may display and you may learn in your own experience that the will of God is in fact good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us in this. Help us in this. Lay hold of us. Reorient us. Reorder us. Reshape us. Deal with us deeply at those deep places And please do not stop for the sake of your own name so that we all together might come to the place where we see your will in every respect as being good and well-pleasing and whole. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.